0: I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we'll be talking with my UCSF geriatrics colleague, Dr. Stephanie Rogers, MDMPH, and we'll be talking about age-friendly health systems. Dr. Rogers is an assistant professor in our division of geriatrics And she is our lead inpatient geriatrician at UCSF's main hospital, Moffitt Long Hospital, where over the past few years, she's been helping to design, implement, and deliver several innovative programs designed to help older adults avoid common complications of hospitalization. These include programs addressing hip fracture care, delirium prevention, and also something called an acute care for elders unit. And we'll be talking more about what that is. So these programs are being pursued as part of an initiative to make UCSF a more age-friendly health system. As you may know, hospitalization has historically been somewhat risky for older adults. So it's been really wonderful to see over the past few years how Dr. Rogers and her colleagues have been making UCSF a much better and safer hospital for our older patients. So I'm just so delighted to have her on the podcast today to tell us more about what we know and what we're learning about making hospital care and health systems better for older adults, and to tell us more about the particular programs that she's been working on at UCSF and that hopefully will be coming to a hospital near you soon. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I did cover age-friendly health systems or discuss them in episode 39 with Amy Berman of the Hartford Foundation Foundation. That was about two years ago when the Hard Food Foundation was funding the initial efforts to, to get this project going. But it's been a while since that episode, and I think this concept of age-friendly health systems is just so important. So I thought it would be great for us to start by having you telling us what exactly is an age-friendly health system and why is it so important?
1: Yeah, well, Age-Friendly Health Systems, is it's a national initiative run by the Institute on Healthcare Improvement and the John A. Hartford Foundation. And the goal is to assist health systems in redesigning care to ensure that every older adult and their families and their caregivers get the best care possible no matter which healthcare setting they're in, whether they're at home or in nursing homes or in the hospital. And they have this bold aim to try to make 20% of healthcare systems age-friendly by 2020. And it's really an exciting time because there's a lot of uh, payment reform going on nationally. And this is really driving some of these changes and allowing health systems to really put uh, their money where their mouth is. And so much of what we do in geriatrics is population health, thinking about how healthcare is delivered for not just a patient but for their family and making sure that they get care in the right place and um, one of the things that i really like about age-friendly health systems is that they really aim to integrate with the community organizations addressing social influencers of health like housing and food insecurity and really focusing on achieving good health outcomes eliminating harm and creating value for both the patients and the health system.
0: Right. Now, I think, you know, for us in geriatrics, it's often very obvious to us the many ways in which the hospital or healthcare system, you know, is not age friendly. But I feel like that's often actually kind of news to people because I think intuitively they think, well, so many older people get hospitalized. So of course, isn't the hospital sort of well set up to, to serve them, but that, that's actually not so true. So can you tell us more? I remember uh, Amy Berman had covered that there were four M's, four particular things that they wanted to encourage hospitals and health systems to focus on.
1: Can we review those briefly? Sure. So there's really... Four things that age friendly health systems should really focus on. And the first one is uh, the first M is what matters. And so that is knowing and acting upon what patients want, what their goals are, and their care preferences. Um, The second M is medications. So this is, as you know, older adults, they can often have larger medication lists. And so really focusing on what the right combination of medications are for older adults so that they can meet their goals. The third M is mobility and maintaining independence. So building areas for adults to optimize their independence and their mobility. So whether you're in a hospital or a nursing home or even at home. And the last one is mentation. So we want to make sure that we're always identifying and treating things like dementia, depression, and delirium. And what's kind of cool about these four M's is they're they're all interrelated. So sometimes de-prescribing a medication can improve someone's mentation and their mobility. And those are the things that matter to the person. So although we list them separately, they're often very interrelated.
0: Right, yeah, no, I, I love those. They're obviously near and dear to us in geriatrics, and I don't mean to make anybody in the audience you know, worried, but the truth is that there, historically there hasn't been as much attention paid to those four things as perhaps there could be, and so this is a, a great initiative to help really non-geriatricians too, right? Because so much healthcare is delivered by non-geriatricians Exactly. um, apply these principles of what we know is often so helpful for older adults. So, you know, addressing what matters, reviewing that with them and making sure that the healthcare team is aware of it. Medications, making sure they're all necessary and not causing harm or an unwarranted harm and uh, mobility, helping people remain mobile, Maintain their strength, addressing fall risk, and then you said mentation. So things that have to do with how the brain is thinking and functioning, and making sure we, we think about delirium, dementia, and I think you may have mentioned one other depression, also, yes. Depression, yes. So helping people's you know,
1: minds be at their best. So, how is this different from usual healthcare? <laughs> That's a great question and I, I often get that question just even in general, how is a geriatrician different than any other doctor? but you know how is an age-friendly health system different than usual care that's out there? And I describe it like this very often. A lot of health professionals are disease focused. so maybe you have diabetes or high blood pressure, and we become kind of siloed into treating just diseases. But what we've learned in in our extended training for older adults is that we know older adults are very unique. Often they have many medical problems that have lasted many years. They have long lists of medications. They have complex social needs. Their support systems may not be as big. They may have cognitive or functional issues, so memory problems, or they may need to use a walker to get around or up and down stairs. They could have sensory impairments, like hearing issues or visual issues. And so as geriatricians or in age-friendly health systems, we don't just focus on the disease. We actually add in all these other complex factors in caring for the person. And to kind of add on what you were saying before, as geriatricians, we focus on the 4Ms all the time. But part of building an age-friendly health system is building these four M's into the system so that every patient, whether they see a geriatrician or not, have these things addressed. And this is what's really fun and exciting about building these programs is because there's a lot that we can do to make sure that every patient gets this kind of care.
0: Right. Yeah. Before we we started recording our interview, you had shared with me some some slides from a presentation you gave. And, and I just loved these six characteristics that you had mentioned, which is probably something that I know the Institute for Healthcare uh, Improvement and the John A. Hartford Foundation have been just so instrumental in, you know, articulating specifics, right? So that we can go from these, these ideas to specific things that we can ask health systems to do or that people can look for. So along with those four Ms, I really love this list of six characteristics, which were leadership committed to addressing ageism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because so often some of these issues, the, you know, the falls or the confusion are overlooked because, because sometimes people and health providers are like, oh, that's just getting old. And that's not necessarily fair to, to our older patients. Evidence-based clinical programs, you know, based on what we know in geriatrics, multidisciplinary clinical staff, the idea of a team, which has always been really important to us in geriatrics. I know a lot of the projects you've worked on involve teams, and I'm really excited for you to share that with the audience. A systematic approach to coordinating care with organizations beyond their walls. And you were mentioning this, this sort of connection, right, with the community. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: This is one of my all time favorites. A strategy to coordinate with and support family caregivers.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. How could
0: we not love that? Because of course, you know, for every patient, I think the family and the care circle are so important, but it's especially obvious and visible to us in geriatrics, how important families are, and then a clear process for talking to patients and older adults about their goals and their preferences so that we can make sure we provide care that's in line with that.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that that goes along too with the 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 leadership committed to addressing ageism thing. And this is the idea that in geriatrics we we focus a lot on not providing too much care or too little care, and sometimes in healthcare someone can look at someone's age and make a decision on that, but like we talked about before, a person is very complex. They have a lot of complex factors that can determine their care and we don't discriminate based on age. We want to know what the patient's goals and preferences are and that we give care that's concordant to that, not a number.
0: Right. Exactly. Yes. So important. And I found a, uh, like a, article about it written uh, in part by Terry Fulmer, who is, you know, helps lead the Hartford Foundation. But at one point, they sort of said that, you know, we need not just quality improvement, because we have been working on quality improvement for hospitals and for older adults for quite a long time, but that we really need like a social movement,
1: right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) To
0: recognize the importance of just adapting the entire healthcare system so that it's a better fit for what older adults need. So I'm just so excited to see this movement taking off. So I want you to tell us more about what's going on at UCSF. And just to start with, like, how did you become involved in UCSF's initiative to start creating an age-friendly health system there.
1: Yeah, well, I get very excited about this topic. It's It's been a really fun kind of road so far. And it's really started in residency for me when I was doing an internal medicine fellowship here. And, and something didn't quite feel right when I was taking care of certain patients. And I felt like we could do something better and i started meeting other folks here at ucsf whether they were nurses or pharmacists who had the same ideas that i did and so we started getting together and meeting and talking about how we could do things better and in particular for older people mm. And so when I started on faculty here, I started forming these just interest groups and started soliciting ideas throughout the health system on on areas that we thought we could improve health. And eventually just this grew into this kind of 10-year strategic plan on how we can actually reform the entire system. And at the same time, this national age-friendly health system movement was just starting up. And so we heard about that and we said, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And so we kind of jumped on board to to align with the IHI and the Hartford Foundation on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's just such a like wonderful convergence of interest and energy. And I think it's so cool how it started with you just connecting with other uh, people of different disciplines and just thinking, how can we make this better? So actually, yeah, the the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and the Hartford Foundation specifically funded some pilot sites for this, right?
1: Mm-hmm. They did.
0: And are we a pilot site at UCSF?
1: We were not a, a pilot site, but we're now in the next wave of institutions. Although towards the end of that pilot year, they did invite us to Boston to kind of meet with everyone because they, they saw that we were doing the exact same things that these pilot sites were doing. So oh. officially not a pilot site, but kind of in that same point in the road of development. Great.
0: So it sounds like you connected with UCSF's leadership and they were interested in supporting this.
1: Yeah, well, I to be honest, it took a few years to get there, to leadership, to really get the leadership support and I think a lot of it is in geriatrics we've always kind of branded ourselves as you know we're we're doing good care we're doing the right thing for patients and this is always very in, important and leadership was very excited about that but they kind of wanted to see the, also the hard numbers you know how does this fit with their strategic goals how is this going to be valuable for them to invest in. And, and so we really started uh, looking at all the broad range of evidence out there for geriatric clinical programs and realizing this actually saves money in addition to helping people. UCSF has very clear st- strategic goals. And so what we did is we we found out what was most important to UCSF and we picked the programs that aligned with those strategic goals. The other thing that just kind of fell into place at the right time was payment reform. So. We used to be in a fee-for-service kind of world, but now with the Affordable Care Act and um, accountable care organizations, these sorts of things, we're starting to the insurance companies are starting to pay for population health, so trying to keep people healthier and out of the hospital. And that really bodes well for a lot of these geriatric clinical programs because we try to provide just the right care in in the right setting for everybody, and that actually ends up saving money and improving care. So it was those two factors that came together just at the right time to really get the leadership invested in this.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that you bring that up because I think, you know, sometimes we feel motivated and we want to make a change and we want to do well. And I think you're bringing up something really important that it's really useful to figure out for the big players, what's important to them. (laughs) And, you know, how can you align with what's important to them, which, which incidentally is also what we do as clinicians, right? Exactly. (laughs) Is we talk to our patients and find out what is important to them instead of telling them what they should do, Mm -hmm. you know, figure that out and try to, you know, see where we can align and overlap and help them reach their goals. So once they were, were interested, what were the first programs that they, they wanted you to work on or that, that you wanted to work on? How did it first get started?
1: Yeah, well, we again this took quite a bit of time too, but we kind of looked at the landscape of, you know, what do we expect at UCSF in the next 10 to 15 years? What's the population going to look like? Where where are the biggest gaps in care? Where are we not doing as well on our health outcomes? Where are we not doing as well on our cost outcomes? And let's let's put our money in those places first. And so we picked a couple programs in the inpatient setting and a couple programs in the outpatient setting. And, and really, um, we wanted a good focus on transitions of care between those settings. So in the inpatient setting, we decided to build an ACE unit, do a hip fracture, uh, geriatrics, orthopedics co-management program, um, work on delirium prevention do something we call geriatric workforce training. So this is training everybody in the institution, uh, no matter if you're a cardiologist or a surgeon or a pharmacist, that you get training in geriatric care. And then also making sure that our nurses have what's called a niche designation. So Mm -hmm. niche is a nursing certification. So nurses improving care for health system elders. Uh, We want it to be a niche designated hospital here. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in the outpatient setting, we already had a couple programs going on, but we really wanted to expand our care at home program, which is where our, our providers actually go into the home to provide primary care. Mm-hmm. We had previously had a one-year waiting list for that program. And so we really wanted to expand that availability.
0: Great. Well, amazing. So why don't we, well, let's especially, since I know you, you personally mostly work in the hospital, let's especially talk about some of those. So maybe we'll start with the ACE units. So ACE stands for Acute Care for Elders. And it's actually something that I have not ever talked about on the podcast. So let's start with what is an acute care for
1: elders unit? Sure. So ACE units have actually been around for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, They're all over the country. They are actually localized units in the hospital where a multidisciplinary team, so lots of members of the team, are trained in geriatric syndromes and geriatric challenges. And the unit itself actually promotes independence, mobility, these four Ms, uh, mentation, it looks at medications, and we talk about what matters with patients. And so it's a specialized unit that really kind of focuses on this population. And the goal of of ACE units is to keep people who are somewhat independent in the community and live at home with the support of their family and to keep them in that setting after discharge. So I'm sure you've talked about before, sometimes when older patients go into the hospital, they they get weaker, they may get confused.
0: Well, it's not sometimes, it's, sometimes. Uh, it's very, very often. common, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> right? I mean, it's part of the risk of hospitalization that we were we were talking about. So, so yeah, exactly. tell us more about that because I think you know, ACE units were originally developed and, and and one of the first big studies was actually done by Seth Landefeld, who used to be our division head of geriatrics. Um, exactly. Although yeah. he did that work, I think, at Case Western right before he came to UCSF to found our, our division. But they were created to address a specific problem, which is that so many older people would develop these complications in the hospital and come out worse than they were before, separate from their illness, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so... The goal is to keep people who are somewhat independent just as independent as they were before they came into the hospital. And so they don't have to go to a nursing home, which afterwards, which happens often. And ACE units, actually, there's tons of studies out there that mm-hmm. show that they do great things. So, Yeah. When, you know, my health, the one my health system cared about was that it actually reduces costs and it reduces readmissions and it reduces the time that a patient stays in the hospital. But in addition to those things, it had a lot of outcomes that patients cared about. So it um, improved their functional performance and improves their nutrition, it improves their high risk medication use, it reduces delirium, it reduces the possibility that they're going to get a pressure ulcer. It reduces the likelihood that they're going to fall. All these things that patients care about, ACE units have have been shown to improve outcomes for too. So, right. Really and by functional
0: performance, we mean your ability to walk.
1: Yeah. <laughs> get up out of bed. Exactly. Get dressed. you think that Shower you need to during the day.
0: Exactly. All those things that people often take for granted, and I think people are often kind of blindsided by the way it's so easy for an older person just by lying in bed and being sick for a few days, how quickly people can lose strength when they're older compared to when they're younger. I mean, even younger people lose strength lying in bed for a week, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard from a lot of families where they have a loved one that goes into the hospital for something like a pneumonia or their diabetes, something like this, and they actually you know, think that their loved one is going to get better. But instead, what happens is they come out and they feel like their loved one is worse. They're not able to do as many things as they used to do. They can't shower by themselves. They're more confused. And and the families are confused because they thought, you know, I, I put my loved one in the hospital to get to get better. But, you know, yes, that disease is now gone or improved, but, their life is not better. So I think that's really frustrating for families and patients. And, and this is the exact reason that the ACE unit exists.
0: Right. So so it's basically a, a, a kind of special ward,
1: right? Yes. Uh, Just a like special you have wards, you ha- we can have a geriatric ward too.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, because as people reach, I guess, a certain stage of... Um, age or frailty, or or I think you don't even necessarily need to be frail. I want you to tell us more about who gets placed in the ACE unit, but just a, a certain stage where you're more vulnerable, I guess, to these exactly. hospital complications, being in a ward that is set up to help you avoid those can can really make a difference. So we were you know, saying the things that the ACE unit helps people avoid is one, losing too much strength and ability to manage their daily tasks, right? Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned nutrition, so helping them avoid becoming malnourished and maybe dehydrated also during their stay. I think you mentioned falls, Mm -hmm. help reduce the risk of falls. And that is a huge issue in the hospitals. Older people falling during hospitalization. And then, of course, if people go home weak, they're more likely to fall and get hurt after
1: hospitalization. And the interesting thing about that fact is, A lot of hospitals try to keep patients in bed because they're worried about this, that they're going to fall. But many studies have shown that the more that you get patients up and walk them around, they maintain their strength and their muscles, and that there's actually less falls. So a lot of health systems are doing the counterintuitive thing. We actually want people up and walking around so that they don't fall, not only in the hospital, but at home later when they go home. Right.
0: Okay. So given that the ACE unit is meant to help people maintain more of their strength, and help avoid them getting confused and maintain good nutrition and all that, so they can be strong enough to to go home and be as independent as they were before, how do you, what do you and your team do within the ACE unit to help that happen? What are you doing and how's the ACE unit set up to make that more possible?
1: We actually have daily interdisciplinary rounds on all of the patients. So this is when the bedside nurse, the geriatric pharmacist, the geriatric physical therapist, occupational therapist, the chaplain, the geriatrician, and the primary team all meet together to talk about the patient. And we talk about the medical reasons that they're there, but the majority of the time is we as a team decide how are we gonna mobilize this patient today? How are we going to keep them awake and active? What sort of things do they like to do with their time? Can we have a volunteer or a chaplain visit them? You know, are they feeling lonely or socially isolated? As a team, what are we gonna do about that? How's their nutrition? How's their sleep? We're focusing on all these other things that are not related to the disease. And as a team, we're making a plan for the day.
0: Right. And I guess to just contrast it to usual hospital care, in usual hospital care, a patient may not be seen by all those different disciplines. And even if they were, those different professionals are often not together talking about it collaboratively, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they're usually just very focused on the diseases and the medications, and and not these other things.
0: Right. Okay. So interdisciplinary rounds.
1: Yeah, and then we also try to have activities uh, to give patients things to do, reasons to get out of their room and stay active. So we have what we call exercise, which is is our group exercise class run by our physical therapists and occupational therapists. We have art therapy. We have a volunteer program. We're soon about to start group lunches so that everybody can get out of their room and kind of sit with each other and talk and eat lunch together. Mm -hmm. But kind of redesigning the floor to optimize patients being mentally awake and challenged during the day and then also same thing functionally we really want everybody to maintain their peak level of function and cognition while they're here and so we try to make their lives as normal as possible so that they maintain those skills
0: okay and then you mentioned sleep too i mean i think another innovation of the ace units 20 years ago was um waking people up less at night right? exactly
1: Yeah, and that's one thing we do in rounds is we actually look at all the things that are happening in the middle of the night. and We see if we can retime some medication administrations or is the patient's blood pressure stable enough that we don't have to check it overnight tonight. And so we really look at how we can make the room dark and quiet and minimize the interruptions that they get at night.
0: Mm. Well, it sounds fantastic. So so how many beds do we have in UCSF's uh, ACE unit?
1: So we actually have one unit, which has 36 beds. However, given our hospital is always full, not mm-hmm. all of the beds are always older adults. Mm-hmm. So the ACE team, the interdisciplinary rounds, actually only focuses on um, the older patients on the unit. And any day, we probably have anywhere from 12 to 22 older patients a day.
0: Mm -hmm. And then how does the hospital, or I know you're the medical director, but um, how does it get decided who will go to the ACE unit versus a different vet or who gets prioritized, I guess?
1: Yeah, so we work with the primary admitting teams and, you know, whether it's a surgeon or a medicine doctor. And we... Let them know what our criteria is, and our criteria is someone who is community dwelling who they think subjectively is cognitively or functionally frail and is at high risk for getting delirium or losing some function during the hospital and so we really allow those teams to select you know because they are seeing these patients in the emergency department, we really let them select who who they think would be best for this type of care
0: mm-hmm. and so when you say community dwelling, that means people who live at home or assisted living, but not nursing homes. Exactly, yeah. So nursing home patients currently would just go to a regular bed.
1: Well, if someone, again, if someone thinks that they would really benefit, we take care of all. Mm. people. And, and ACE units do this differently everywhere. It's mm-hmm. just kind of what we have decided to do here at UCSF. And sometimes older patients just end up here for just because there is a bed up here. And so we're always happy to take care of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's just so fantastic and amazing. When I was a resident at UCSF, which is starting to feel a long time ago, about 15 years ago, we didn't have this at all. And I wish we had, but better late than, than never. And do you think they'll eventually expand it? I
1: feel like there are enough vulnerable older adults. <laughs> I mean, there's these other models of ACE care out there. There's a mobile ACE units and Mm -hmm. virtual ACE units. And this Mm -hmm. is where you have interdisciplinary teams that move around the hospital to take care of older adults. So that's always in the back of our mind as a way to kind of expand this care to more folks in our health system.
0: Yeah. It also just sounds a little bit like universal design in that this is especially important and valuable if people are, are... older and have already developed some vulnerabilities or at high risk? And wouldn't everybody like to not be woken up at night and to get more opportunity to socialize and move around and to have their medication reviewed and to have all their providers talking to each other, right?
1: Exactly. And and we actually, because we're designing an age-friendly health system, our ACE unit is is always kind of like our unit where we will do a small test of change. And maybe there's some sort of systemic fix that we can put into the entire health system that will allow everyone to sleep better. So we kind of test these things in the ACE unit, see how they work. And if they're working great, sometimes it's just changing something in the electronic health record that alerts providers that this medication is going to wake them up in the middle of the night, this administration of this medication and then we can expand that to everyone if we make a fix there. So it's it's really kind of exciting to have that ability to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It just reminds me of some of the, um, one of the other guests on the podcast recently, Bill Thomas was just talking about this inclusiveness and that when we design something that works well for the more vulnerable members of our society, everybody ends up benefiting. Exactly. And so that's what this uh, this makes me think of. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so... ACE units are amazing in shorts and <laughs> Yes. So we can I guess would you tell the audience to how many ACE units you said there are a lot of them, but do most hospitals have ACE units?
1: At this so point? unfortunately most hospitals do not have ACE units, although I know Not it, yet. Not yet, <laughs> but um I'll tell you, in the last year, I've had nine different institutions visit our ACE unit just from the Bay Area um, because their health system is looking to build ACE units. So I think we are at a tipping point, which is exciting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's something people can do is ask and find out if your hospital has one or is interested or maybe if they hear that enough people in their community are interested, that will help them make the, uh, the decision. Yeah. So now let's talk about one of the other projects that you mentioned, which is the UCSF Hip Fracture Co-Management Service. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So we, we know that patients who break their hip are often the most frail. And we really wanted to focus on these patients. And there's a really good evidence out there that um, having a geriatrician work with an orthopedic surgeon to take care of these patients has good outcomes. And so this was a really exciting process because, again, we had a really motivated group of interdisciplinary physicians and nurses, from the emergency department, from orthopedic surgery, from anesthesia, from medicine, and we all work together to to form what we call a hip fracture protocol. So what we think is the best care for every patient who breaks their hip from the time that they come to our emergency department to 90 days after they leave the hospital. And we basically just looked at all of the evidence out there and put this protocol together.
0: So what were the sort of issues or things that were coming up with usual hip fracture care? And then how did this protocol address them or improve on them?
1: Well, I think like most healthcare, it can often be disjointed and siloed. And so we wanted to bring this team approach to care. We know that the sooner that the orthopedic surgeons can fix the fracture, the better the outcomes are going to be for the patient, both in their ability to walk again and be independent, but also to prevent delirium, get out of the hospital faster, be more likely to go home rather than to a a rehab facility after discharge. And so we really focused on this quick time to the operating room, controlling pain mm. and preventing delirium with them getting up to work with physical therapy as soon as the hip is fixed. Mm-hmm. So these were the main parts of the protocol.
0: Yeah. So pain I think is always an interesting question because people are often concerned that if you give some an older person with a, a hip fracture pain medication, that the pain medication might make them confused. Did you did you find a a way to to navigate that
1: balance? Yeah, so there is a procedure that can be done where um, either an ED physician or anesthesiologist can actually put some numbing medication in a, a, a nerve in your hip, and it can actually numb the entire hip and leg so that we don't have to use opioids or systemic pills that can make older adults confused and i recently saw this work so well we had an older woman who was 102 years old and she came into the emergency department with a broken hip and she was really upset and in a lot of pain and writhing and you know the ed physicians they did this nerve block really quickly and instantly she was very calm and comfortable she went right into the operating room stayed in the hospital only two days. And in that entire hospital stay, she only used a half of a pill of a pain med.
0: Oh my God, that's amazing. I mean, I love that because, and that's really the beauty of these, you know, this process where you come up like, where a group comes up with the sort of better ways. Yes. And then makes it easy for other providers to access that and to start from there instead of everybody kind of just doing what, pops into their head, which may or may not be our latest understanding.
1: Exactly. Everybody knows their role. Yeah. Everybody knows their role. Everybody knows what they need to be doing. And we hold each other accountable. You know, it's it's always fun when I walk into the emergency department and I I see the emergency physician. We look at each other. We know exactly what's going on and 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 how we're moving forward and it and it is really great.
0: So the the pain medication you said, um, you know, and especially focusing on these nerve blocks, which create less risk of of confusion and systemic side effects, also can allow you to avoid the constipation <laughs> that comes with yes, opiates. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and getting to the OR faster. And then you said afterwards, is there more to it afterwards?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we try to um, stand the patient up out of bed with um, help from our physical therapists, as soon as they get back to their room, or early if they get back too late at night, we'll let them sleep and do it first thing in the morning. We know that the earlier that we get patients up, the more likely that they are gonna be able to maintain their level of independence and go back home with their family. So this is very different than the old way of thinking. They used to let people lay around for days yeah Yeah. and wait till their pain was better and all of these things to get people moving but now we know that we want you up and doing the things that you normally do brushing your teeth going to the bathroom brushing your hair all of these things back doing those as soon as possible and if we get you to the operating room very quickly you're up and standing you know within 24 hours 36 hours of breaking your hip which is really kind of um exciting and good. Yeah, no, that
0: is, uh, that is fantastic. And then does the team help teach families how to comfortably help their older uh, loved one move around? Because I think often, you know, families are a little bit worried when they see the older person standing up, like, is that good for your hip? You could fall? I don't know how to help support you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we as a team start thinking about how they're moving around in the hospital and what's that going to look like at home. And we engage, in particular, our physical therapists, they really engage um, the families and the caregivers in teaching them how to safely help their loved one move around. They teach them how to use equipment if they are going to need new equipment. And we actually practice in the hospital before they go home so that everyone feels like they're on the same page and they know exactly what they're doing. And the great part about having a geriatrician kind of co-manage these patients with the orthopedic surgeons is that we're also thinking about what their home life looks like, and we're starting to talk about safety needs and those sorts of things from the day that the patient comes into the hospital. So we're preparing for those things for day one.
0: Mm -hmm. And then a lot of those people must also have just ongoing chronic conditions, that, you know, may or may not be managed the way we would as geriatricians, do you also end up like making recommendations for the primary care physicians about their other conditions or is that not within the scope of this program?
1: No, we absolutely do that. And in fact, sometimes as a patient gets older, the things that are important to them are are somewhat different. And so it's very common that they're on a lot of blood pressure medications, but these medications are making their blood pressure so low that when they stand up, they're feeling dizzy. Mm -hmm. And it could be what contributed to the fall in the first place. And so if we suspect something like that is happening, we'll actually um, call the primary care physician. Sometimes we'll even talk with the families and the primary care doctors all together before they leave the hospital to see if we can't come up with the perfect um, medication regimen for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we think this is really important that that everybody kind of works together and is on the same page.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we know that hip fracture is often such a uh, sentinel or life, potentially life-changing event for, for older adults. And a lot of them um, do have difficulty regaining the same or historically have had difficulty regaining the same level of independence and mobility. Are there research studies on either your program or other ones? And what are they finding, you know, in terms of the, the impact?
1: Yeah, it's exactly what, like you're saying, this, this can be a very big sentinel event for a family. And we do try to have these conversations up front of what we think it's going to look like from not only this week, but, you know, the next couple weeks and over the next year. And unfortunately, a high number of patients who break their hip will die within a year. And so we try to talk to families about this at the very beginning. And, and one thing I always like to do is talk about, you know, what the best case scenario is going to be, could be, what the worst case scenario could be, and then where we think that um, person may fall in that spectrum. And that really helps them Kind of have expectations for in best case, we expect the person to be walking at home with a walker for the rest of their life. In the worst case, they could possibly die. And I think most likely for your family member, what could happen is that they um, may need to walk with a walker, but they're going to need a 24 hour caregiver to help them with things like showering, getting up out of their chair, going to the bathroom. And so we kind of talk about those things the first day that they're in the hospital.
0: But in terms of the program, are sort of more people who go through this co management able to walk with a walker at you yeah. know sort of ninety days later? I imagine, yes. I mean it absolutely fantastic. yeah. So they're
1: more likely to get back to their baseline function or pretty close to it, they're more likely to be living at home and, and not in a nursing home. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Oh. Well, I love it. So does does everyone who breaks a hip get it? Or again, just the the ones who get flagged as higher this,
1: At this hospital, yes. Every patient who breaks their hip um, gets this program. And we're going to actually be expanding in the next year to more of what we call fragility fractures. So these fractures that are because of osteoporosis. So whether it's your arm or your ankle, it's should be all kind of treated the same way. And we're going to take all the things that we learned from this program and expand it to more of these other types of osteoporosis-related fractures.
0: Oh, that's great. And then what about other... I mean, a lot of older adults get elective orthopedic procedures, elective joint surgeries, especially knee replacements, hip replacements. Now, they're usually... I think, younger and less frail than the ones who come in with a broken hip. Exactly. But is there a role for this kind of co-management program for those elective surgeries at this point?
1: Yeah, there's studies out there that show that geriatrics co-management can improve the outcomes for these types of patients. And I think we're going to be moving into some of that care also, you know, the geriatrics orthopedic co-management service is a well-researched type of service. And so all of these types of orthopedic procedures are benefited um, by having a geriatrician co manage And a lot of that is because function is such an important aspect of everything that they do and that we do. And working together, we really have lots of good outcomes.
0: hmm Fantastic. I love it. Yeah. So, okay, well, we'll have you talk about one more program at UCSF because you mentioned it before, and it's also so, so important, which is you mentioned a delirium reduction project. So we have talked about delirium a few times on the podcast. We had Dr. Inoue, who's done so much work on delirium for episode 62, but maybe we can briefly recap what is delirium and then what is that project at UCSF looking like?
1: Sure. So delirium is hospital confusion. It can be caused by many things. Like you said, sometimes it's medication, sometimes it's lack of sleep. It could be an underlying medical condition like an infection, but it is very distressing for patients and families. And it's also very um, hard for the staff because they're trying to take good care of these patients and they're often confused. And so um, that's how our delirium reduction campaign kind of came in to fruition was we had a, a neurohospitalist um Banya Douglas, who, oh yeah, was talking to a lot of the nurses, and their nurses were saying, You know we need help taking care of these patients. We can tell that they're suffering and they're confused, and we want to know how to better take care of these patients. And so he actually designed a pathway that he made on the neuro um, units that we he studied and it ended up having great outcomes. And then we just disseminated that program throughout the entire institution.
0: So, yes, yeah, so delirium is that state of, you know, new or worse than usual confusion that is so common in the hospital. And I will point out that um, people do become delirious outside the hospital, too. I say that because I think sometimes people don't uh, realize that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that yes. it just it comes from being quite sick and of course um, and, and being stressed sort of physical stressors and mental stressors. And so even if you weren't sick enough to have delirium before you got hospitalized, just everything you go through in the hospital, especially if surgery or really serious illness was involved, could make you delirious. And then when people are older and frailer, it takes even less for them to become delirious in the hospital. And it's super common. So for the delirium reduction project, is it more about how you treat people once they have delirium, or is it more about preventing delirium, or is it both? Tell us a little bit more about what it actually looks like.
1: Sure. So it's actually both, and patients will have better outcomes if you actually prevent delirium in the first place, obviously. So one thing that we do is we do a screening test when every patient comes into the hospital, it's called an wall, And it tells us who's high risk of getting delirium and who's low risk of getting delirium. And if you're high risk, we're going to concentrate all of our resources on that group of people to prevent delirium. And then in addition, every patient that's in the hospital, this is every age, gets a screening test for delirium. And if any time they become positive and they get, uh, have new onset of delirium, they actually go into this same pathway where the high-risk patients are in. And that pathway is very interdisciplinary. So every discipline in the hospital has a role to play. So the nurses really focus on mobility and sleep and those sorts of things. We Our pharmacists actually do an evaluation of the medication. So we know that there's certain medications that are more likely to cause confusion and the pharmacists will make recommendations to the, top, the the doctors to either change a medication or stop a medication to try to prevent delirium. And then our physicians, um, we have this order set in our electronic health record that allows, it kind of guides the doctor into some things that they can do to help prevent delirium. For instance we talked about earlier, stopping checking blood pressure overnight to allow the patient to sleep. You know, is the patient stable enough to do that? Or do they need their um, urinary catheter right now? Can that be removed? Those sorts of things. And so everybody in the hospital is working together and communicating about these high risk patients or these patients that are delirious.
0: Wow. Well, that is fantastic because I know that historically delirium has often been Underrecognized by health providers, you know that's what a lot of uh, studies had shown was was that an older person might be delirious, and it may not have been noticed by the hospital staff. Either they're confused, and people sometimes assume, oh, they're always like that, Mm -hmm. when in fact they're worse than usual. And that might reflect our ageism—that you know, if somebody looks like they're they're quite old and they're acting confused, we we assume it's their usual state, and maybe it's not. Or there's a you know, people can also become very quiet and spaced out when they're delirious, hypoactive delirium. And so then they're just so quiet. (laughs) And then people don't notice the quiet person who's actually spaced out and inattentive and is delirious. And that is still an issue that should be addressed. So so right now, UCSF is screening every older person for delirium?
1: Every person in the hospital, whether you're young or old, because we know that younger people get delirium too. And this they is do, both yeah. at Parnassus and at Mission Bay, whether you're in the ICU or on the floor. Every 12 hours, a nurse is doing a delirium screen. That is amazing. And we have over 90% compliance with those screens.
0: Yes. And so I remember that, you know, it's often sort of ballpark that among older adults during a hospitalization, about a third of them, you know, that's a a figure that's come out in some studies will experience delirium at some point. Is that what you're you're finding? Because it's a lot of people to put into the protocol.
1: Yeah, we actually found that about 17% of patients get delirious. And a about that same number, about 19% of patients, um, and there's some overlap in those groups, um, are high risk for delirium. So at any one time, uh, there's probably a little less than 20% of patients in the protocol. So one in five are getting the protocol.
0: It's still a lot, but it's fantastic if you are able to deliver the protocol to to that many people, because I imagine it's one thing to deliver a protocol to sort of 10 patients. And this must be how many at a time getting it?
1: A lot. Yeah. It's a, it's a, for every unit, you know, usually every nurse is taking care of at least one of these patients. So.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And then let's talk just briefly about prevention. So what are the, the what are the things that prevent delirium? And I think it's also said about 40% of delirium can be prevented, right? It can't all be prevented.
1: Yeah. I think it's around 30%, about a third of cases. Yeah. Can be
0: prevented. Exactly. Right, so yeah. it's it's not a guarantee that the person won't get delirious, but preventing thirty percent of it is still helping a lot of people.
1: Exactly, yeah, and and a lot of what we do it seems like simple things, but um, we really focus on making sure that patients are sleeping well at night and that they're in a dark room where it's not noisy and they're not getting interrupted. We during the day try to keep them awake and and not. Taking a lot of naps. Uh, we try to make sure the lights are on and that their shade, the window shades are open and they're getting in good light so that their circadian rhythms are intact. And we also want them to be cognitively stimulated. So, do they enjoy talking to people or reading or doing puzzles or knitting? We want them to be, their minds to be active during the day. Um, so we spend a lot of time with that. We really encourage family members and caregivers that they know well to be at the bedside and to help us with these tasks. We ask them to bring in items from home, so pictures or things that they can use to reminisce with their family members. and so those are some of the biggest things that you can do to prevent delirium. So we spend a lot of our time working on those. Mm-hmm. and
0: then once, The person does have delirium, either they got flagged as having it when they came in or they developed it. I know all those things are still important to do because it's part of supportive care to help the the mind recover from whatever stressor brought on the delirium. But we also usually look for, you know, is there something triggering or bringing on this delirium? Do you have a
1: kind of pathway for the clinical team to follow to check for those? Absolutely. So every physician or extended provider, like a nurse practitioner or physician assistant, has been educated on how to work up delirium. So just to look for the possible medical causes of delirium. And we have pocket cards that they carry around in their white coats to remind them of the sorts of things that they need to look for. And every time I see a patient who's confused, I actually Take out this card, and I go step by step, and I do these steps to make sure that I'm ruling out all of the causes of delirium. So it's really great because the patients know what to expect, the nurses know what to expect, all the physicians know what they're doing, and it 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 really makes a well coordinated pathway.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's what we're coming back to. You know, like a good pathway Mm -hmm. is just so important to give people like an easy, evidence based starting ground to do the right thing. I mean, it's not necessarily right for everybody, but at least you're providing the foundation to make it easy for health providers to, to do something that we think is you know, most likely to be most helpful.
1: Exactly. And I, I think that's the basis of the entire age-friendly health system is putting things into place to reduce the variability of care. So everybody's getting the same good care every time, um, no matter where they are in the hospital, no matter what age they are, no matter what's going on with them. And so that's that's part of the challenge and that's part of the exciting thing about working on an age-friendly health system is we get to think about innovative ways to really put all of these things in place.
0: Right, yeah. Well, that is wonderful. And are there informational materials? I think UCSF has a website
1: about delirium, right? For the public? Yeah, absolutely. We actually, um, it's delirium.ucsf.edu. Okay. And we had a great group of medical students last year who went around and talked to many families and caregivers about delirium. And we tried to get um, families and caregivers of all ethnicities and languages. And we wanted to understand what they wanted to know about delirium what they needed to help take care of their confused loved ones. And we put together this website. So it has information on delirium, but in addition, it has very practical tips or things that families can do to help their loved one with delirium.
0: Oh, great. Well, we will definitely share that in the show notes because I have an article on hospital delirium on Better Health While Aging, and it gets so many people visiting. And I think the problem is that many people's older loved one is not Hospitalized at a place like UCSF that has implemented this kind of project, and um, so they often say you know they describe something that sounds like delirium and says that the doctors haven 't told us what that is, you know that this is it, or why aren 't they doing something about it or I asked if it could be delirium, and they told me to not sort of worry about it and what should they be doing and so I think you know for people who are uh, working in a healthcare system that you know for whatever reason has not yet been able to do this, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of frustration. They kind of want to know what should they be doing? What should they be asking? Exactly. um, About because they want to be proactive and they want to know how to advocate, right? Absolutely. Understandably. So that's great that you have created this resource. We'll be sure to share it in the show notes. Great. Right. So you mentioned that as a resource for family and, and caregivers. What other things have have you and UCSF been doing to you know address this aspect of the age-friendly health system of of um, connecting better with the care circle?
1: Yeah. So um, one unique thing that we have at um, UCSF are these patient and family advisory councils. Mm. Um, and so these these there's many of them actually. They sit in different infrastructure. So there's outpatient ones, there's different ones, if you've had surgery, or if you've been in the ICU. And so this is really great, because these are families and patients who have actually gone through our healthcare system. And now want to help us do better. So anytime we have a challenge, we can bring it to this group and we can get their feedback from real patients and families. And sometimes the ideas for how to improve things are coming from the patients and families in the first place. So they're the ones telling us, this is this is what you you guys need to do better. And so this is a really amazing way to engage our community and, and make sure that we're really focusing on the things that are important to patients and families.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. It's fantastic. So great. Well, you've done so much. How long have you been doing this for UCSF? I'm
1: trying to remember when it started. Um, I have been on faculty, I think, five years now. hmm Yeah. So about five years we've been kind of doing this. And, and most of the clinical programs started about a year and a half ago, so they're brand new. Um, but a lot of the design and the engagement of the leadership and different people at UCSF has been going on for quite a few years.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like it takes a fair amount of pre-work to get get this going, but it's just an amazing achievement for you and your colleagues and the medical center to have, have done this. So what's coming
1: this year now? Yeah, well, I mean, we're continuing to make these programs better. We um, are always talking to our patients and families to find out what they want and what they need. And so there'll be a lot of small changes, I'm sure, coming ahead. One exciting thing that's happening is all of the University of California hospitals, so UCLA, UCSF, UCSD, are going to be implementing geriatric emergency departments. And they will all be working together. So they'll be standardized across the UC system. So we're excited to start an Uh, geriatric emergency department. And we're going to continue to work with the IHI and the Hartford Foundation and sharing what we're learning and what the other places are learning so that as this age-friendly initiative expands across the world, we can do our part to help really spread this care everywhere. So if you're not living in the Bay Area, you can actually get this care wherever you are. So we really want to make sure that what we're doing gets disseminated everywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that was part of the Hartford Foundation's stated goal when they launched this a few years ago was 20%, right, of hospitals or health systems, I forget which it was, to be to have or be working on an age-friendly health system by 2020.
1: Exactly. Right? So that's yeah. next
0: year. Yeah. And we have examples like UCSF to for others to learn from, which I think is going to help, right? I can sort of imagine this kind of snowballing, right?
1: Yes, we're happy to help. It's so totally
0: fantastic. And I love the idea of geriatric emergency rooms. We'll have to do another episode on that subject at some point. So for now, for the listeners who now may be wondering how they can find an age-friendly health system or at least get in care that's in line with those key principles, any any recommendations for, for, for what they can do or how they can either take Get better care for themselves, or help foster this movement.
1: I think if health systems are becoming age-friendly, I think they'll start advertising this. This will obviously uh, be something that they'll want to share with everyone. So, you can probably check on the websites of the institutions that you're um, you're getting care at. I know the IHI website is going to list these sites too. So, um, IHI.org will will let you um, people know. What age friendly health systems are out there.
0: And that's the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, a very venerable, well organized institution to do quality improvement, really related to healthcare.
1: Exactly. Okay. So I think those are the best ways to find out about it. And then, you know, I think aging is a universal experience. And I think every person uh, really needs to define what's important to them and to their loved ones and to find places and providers that are willing to talk about these things. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and if you're finding yourself in somewhere where you don't get to talk about these things and have these conversations, then you should find another place to go because there are many institutions and um, health systems and providers who want to talk about your goals and what's important to you and to really look for those types of providers.
0: Right. Yeah. And so if it's an elective surgery, maybe looking to find out, you know, and asking, maybe people can even ask their surgeons or the institution, what kind of programs do you have to help these kinds of surgeries be successful in older adults I guess that would be sort of something people could
1: exactly ask. it's you have to be very proactive and ask you know what what can I do to decrease the chance that I'm going to get delirium or to make sure that I can go home after this hospitalization and 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 be proactive and ask these types of questions because um, there's a lot of people out there that Really want to do this great care, so
0: well, Stephanie, thank you so much for for coming
1: to talk about it, but you know really, for helping to spearhead this at UCSF well, thank you, I appreciate it, and I have to say, I absolutely love my job. I think this is so fun. I enjoy coming to work t- every day, and I get to work with lots of people that are passionate about this exact same thing i think that 's the thing that really drives me is to see how many people are really excited about um, making care better for older adults. So I'm happy to talk and I'm um, excited to do what I do.
0: Yeah, well, you are where you need to be and you are where we need you to be. So it's fantastic. Thank you so very much. Of course, thank you so much. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.